We are going to be reading John chapter 15 today. If you guys have a Bible, open it up there. I should note the the text on the back of the bulletins is off by a couple verses. We're going to be reading John 15, verse 18, through John 16, verse 4. So if you guys have a Bible, please stand with me. If you don't have a Bible, stand with me as well. Um, And we will read God's word. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. God, it is good to be here in this place, a gathering of your people. This is not our doing, but this is something that you have created as you have called us out of the world to belong to you. And uh, so I do pray that as we look into your word this morning, you would awaken our hearts and let us be challenged, let us be changed by it, and let us know you more through it. God, specifically this morning, I want to lift up to you the people living in Parkland, Florida, who this week, uh, we once again were in, encountered the reality that we live in a very fallen broken world, a world marred by sin, and uh, I fail to even find the words of how to pray for those folks, families who lost young children, Uh, and yet we know that you do still reign. It's hard for us to, to grapple with these realities, it's hard for us to understand the why of it all, but we look to you today and ask that you would bring hope, that you would bring peace that you would bring comfort to those families this morning, to that community, to our nation, to our world. I pray that your gospel would continue to go forth to overcome the wickedness of our hearts. This world that is set against you, I pray that would be overcome uh, by the blood of your Son. So I pray that we would uh, be those who who mourn with those who mourn, who, who, who speak truth and love into this lost world. So guide us as we... Engage with your word this morning, and let us love you through it. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Let me ask you guys, uh, have you ever been thrown into a situation in which you didn't quite know what to expect? Kind of didn't know what to anticipate, what was going to happen, what it was going to be like. A number of years ago, this happened to me. Uh, back in, in, in college, I spent a summer working up in Casper, Wyoming. I had a buddy up there who uh, ran a landscaping business, so I spent the summer up there just working with him, mowing lawns. Well, my buddy had, a, had a, another friend who worked as a ranch hand on a large cattle ranch in, in Wyoming, uh, just outside of town, a number of miles. And this guy had uh, come to, to, to my buddy and asked if, if we wanted to come out and help them with, their, with branding their cattle. And so we were like... Okay, you know, you know, sure, you know, we 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 could uh, find our way around, you know, uh, just physical labor and all. And so we said, yeah, sure, we can we can we can come out and help you guys. 
And so uh, they, they were a little bit behind on the season because of the weather and all. So uh, they, they had some 200 head of cattle that they had to, to brand and get done over the course of just a few days that they were trying to do. So it was this, this big event. And so we, we got picked up on Saturday by, by this friend, and he took us out to the ranch. And now, I, I'm not exactly a country boy, but at the same time, like, I don't consider myself necessarily a city slicker either. Like, like I know how to, how to get after it, do some hard labor, I've done a lot of manual labor. So I thought, sure, I can get out here and, and you know, mix it up with these, with these cowboys and, uh, and, and get after this. And so, uh, so we show up at this, this ranch, and we're getting ready to, uh, to, to uh, get after uh, branding these cattle. But what, what I found out is when, when we got there is that this wasn't just branding cattle. This was actually this whole process in which we actually also need to castrate the bulls as well. So I'm like thinking, well, this ought to be interesting. So never, never done this before. So we'll, we'll see what's going to happen here. And I, I'm not sure exactly what I expected, but I, I guess I expected it to be something more like a, uh, a medical procedure. Maybe, uh, maybe numb them up a little bit and, uh, you know, provide, you know, you know, some, some, some comfort to the cattle as, as they come in and, and, uh, you know, sort of civilized. But what I was about to experience was something totally unexpected, totally, uh, not anything I had, I had been a part of before. And so we go in and we, 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 uh, kind of get up to the corral where they're, they're going to be doing this. And we're just there to kind of watch and see, you know, get acquainted with, with how this process goes, learn what to hap- what's going to happen. And so basically they release this, this one calf into the, into the pen. And, uh, and this is like, this isn't like some dude ranch. This is like hardcore Wild West Wyoming cattle ranch. So, uh, so they, they, they release the cow in there. And, and, and one, this, this cowboy on a horse amazingly like ropes its back leg. And then these other two guys go in and they basically wrestle this cow to the ground they, they, and then this three-step process, they inject it with this huge needle of, of who knows what. Then this other guy comes, and, he, and he, you know, he burns and brands the cattle on its back end. And then this other person steps in with, with a knife and uh, goes to business on the nether regions here. And so I'm watching this happen. I'm like, wow, this, is, this isn't what I thought I signed up for. Thought maybe I'd be like leading a little cow into a pen and you know trying to you know maybe you know go and, and, and burn them, but this was just a, a totally different experience. And so we watched a couple of these things happen, and I, I was just kind of taking it in. And then uh, the guy that had brought us, he, he he taps me on the back and he says, "Okay, you're up." I'm like whoa, whoa, uh, I, like you know, made a good okay. So uh, so at this point, I'm, I'm kind of like just just kind of in shock of what's happening here, of what's all going on. And I'm thinking, I'd kind of like to just sit back and watch this for a little bit, kind of get mentally ready for this. But then I realized, like, I'm surrounded by all these hardcore cowboys looking at me like, what are you waiting for? And then to make matters worse, this, like, probably 16-year-old girl steps into the pen with a, with a pocket knife. And she's ready to get after it. And so at that point, I'm confronted with my own masculinity. And, like, like what am I going to do? And so uh, if I want to preserve that, I, I need to just get in there and get her done. So I step into this pen. They release this cow. The guy ropes its back leg. And, and basically, the, the two guys, you got one choice. You get either the head or you get the rear end. Guess which end I got? I got the rear end. So I, I, I step up there, and I'm trying to, like, get this thing on the ground. And cows are large creatures. And their, their calves are actually pretty big, too. It's, this thing is not moving. It's not going anywhere. I'm just about to get kicked, about to get stepped on. I'm grabbing the, the rope that's there, and it, this thing isn't going anywhere. So this other cowboy comes in and says, no, you've got to grab its tail. You've got to really, like, hoist it up and throw it down. I'm like, okay. So I basically do a suplex on this calf and body slam it. Then I've got to get down and wrestle with my whole body, both its legs, and, and hold it in place so that uh, all this stuff can be done to it. So there's a lot of dust, there's, there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of moaning, both from the cow and probably from me, and, and ultimately we, we, we get it done. And uh, I step back and I'm like, wow, that was interesting. And so by the end of the day, I kind of got the hang of it, made it through the day, felt like a real cowboy for a day. But uh, later as we were leaving, you know, the guy that had brought us there kind of asked me, hey, what'd you think of the, the, the experience? And I said, well... It was a lot more brutal, I think, than, than I kind of anticipated. And he's like, well, we're, we're branding and castrating calves. What, what did you expect? What did you think it was going to be like? And, and I, as I walked away, I kind of just wished that someone had told me a little bit more about what it was going to be like. 
what I should expect during this process. And in this text today, Jesus is helping his disciples to know what they should expect in the coming days. This passage sits right in the, in the midst of this upper room discourse. It covers chapters, uh, most of chapters 13 through 17. And in this private conversation, Jesus is leaving his followers with some final words of encouragement. And he's doing this before, as only he knows, he is soon to be arrested and crucified. But Jesus has a specific purpose in telling them this. In, in 16 verse 1, he says, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. So Jesus knows that when he is put to death, it is going to rattle his small band of followers, and he is trying to prepare them for his departure. He knows that the days ahead will not be easy, but he's trying to help them know what to expect so that they aren't destroyed by this coming adversity. And we've seen in the past few chapters that Jesus has spoken words of of hope, words of encouragement to these men. He's he's challenged them with, with, hey, love one another, and and through your love, the world's going to see that and recognize you as my followers. He calls them to remember their home, this home that is being prepared for them, which he is going to bring them into. He, he, He tells them to abide in Jesus as the true vine, and through that, he will produce fruit through them, which will ultimately culminate in this fullness of joy. These words of hope and encouragement, they're filled with the promise of victory, of future glory. But then the text that we arrive at takes a pretty drastic turn, and the reality of following Jesus takes on a new light. And these verses are not ones that you're going to find on a coffee cup or plastered on a t-shirt. But this is the beauty of, of preaching through books of the Bible consecutively, that we don't just pass over things like this. We don't just kind of cherry pick what, what's easy to, to, to teach on, to, to understand, to hear. But we have to wrestle with passages like this one. And Jesus wants to set well-defined expectations for his followers and let them know in very clear terms what discipleship is going to be like. And it will be worth it, but it will not be without its challenges. And so we see from the get-go, from the start, point number one, we see the need for realistic expectations. The need for realistic expectations. What is discipleship going to look like? What should we expect? And right off, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, I cho- and because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what should we expect? We should expect that the world will hate us. Isn't that good news for this morning? But the first question that we're confronted with in Jesus' statements is, is, is first of all, what is this world that he talks about? This word world, John uses multiple times both here and even in uh, his later letters. He uses the word world a lot. And it can be used in different ways to, to, to speak of just the whole world, the whole cosmos. That's actually the Greek word is cosmos. And so, so it could be the universe in, in its fullness. But it also is, is, is more specific and has this other meaning. And, and, and sometimes we've, we've kind of uh, reduced the world down to kind of this, this, this idea, I think, that's, that's kind of unhelpful. Sometimes the world has, has basically been, been set forth to mean everything that is not in here. Essentially, there's, there's kind of the Christian domain, and then there's, there's everything else out, outside of that. So everything outside of here, everything that's out there is the world. And so therefore, we've got to separate everything from the world and be our own little thing because we, we, we don't want to be part of any, of any of that outside of here. So texts like 1 John, where it says we're not to love the world... Or passages like Romans 12 where it says, don't be conformed to the world. Sometimes they're taught in such a way that the world becomes almost synonymous with with a specific cultural practice that is in and of themselves evil. So it becomes the classic kind of Christians don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't sleep around. And those things just become identified as the world. And so so the world is those who, who do those things, who behave in that way. And so 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 it's those people that are gonna gonna hate us. 
And, and, and I think we need to nuance this word a little better. There's a sense in which that can be true, but I don't think we can reduce it down to that, to things that are just Christian and then things that are worldly. So I think a more helpful kind of understanding a definition is to understand that, that, that as John uses this word world, he refers to all of humanity in its refusal to accept Jesus as Lord. Another way we could say it is that it's the kind of collective, natural inclination of the human condition to oppose God's kingdom, his purposes, and his reign. It's, a, it's our innate refusal to recognize his authority. So it's more of this mind, this collective mind, our heart condition, that is set against God. This collective attitude, not merely an expre- a specific expression of culture. So there's a sense in which, for John, the world comes to epitomize all the persons, all the values, all the forces that are in opposition to God. So it's not that every person who just isn't a Christian is going to hate all Christians. But it is that the whole of humanity, lost in darkness of sin, is going to seek to push God out of the equation and to live apart from God, apart from His authority, apart from His values, apart from His good design. And this worldliness, this world, then finds its, its manifestation in various people, in various practices, in various cultural expressions that have this shared purpose, this shared foundation of opposing God. So we can't just look at it and see, and see it as, as this one thing, but it is this, this whole mindset and this whole heart condition that is set against God that then takes the form of these different uh, uh, avenues through different people's you know, hatred towards Christianity a certain way, a certain way of living that, that, that denies God. So we understand, as he says, that the world will hate us. I think as we look out through history, we can see that this is true, right? We can recognize the reality of this. That there's not hatred from each person, but generally speaking, the mind and heart that, that, that characterizes humanity and our human condition is set against the purposes of God. You can see it specifically played out in the lives of these men that Jesus is actually speaking to. The ones that he says that they're going to be hated. What did it look like? As we, as we look into the book of Acts, which kind of picks up the story of the, of the apostles after Jesus has ascended, as they go out and they, they proclaim the gospel, they see this, this, this great fruit initially. Things are going great. People are being saved, coming to faith. But then you get to chapter 4, chapter 5, and you start seeing this opposition from the Jewish people and, and others that, that, that want to shut down this message, this, this recognition of Jesus. And in chapter 5, verse 40, 41, eventually the disciple, the, 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 some of the apostles are arrested, then they're beaten and they're released and told, don't, don't preach the gospel. And how do they respond? It says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. So they finally get there and they're, they're, they're beaten. And rather than, like, rather than like calling it quits, they say, no, like, like Jesus said this was going to happen. And they counted themselves worthy to suffer for Jesus. And it didn't get much better for them after that. Well, you can read all through Acts and different things of, of, of the opposition that came about upon the early church. And one of the, one of the greatest apologetics of, of the Christian faith is what happened ultimately to Jesus' followers. They ultimately, most of them, gave their life for what they believed. As we have it in, in, in tradition, um, both Peter... Was, was potentially crucified upside down, according to tr- tradition, what we, what we know, because of his faith in Jesus. Andrew was potentially hung on a cross for two days. John, who wrote this, this book, was not put to death, but he was, he was exiled to the island of Patmos as an outcast. Thomas... It's thought that he was killed by being stuck through with a spear. There's legend of Bartholomew that, that potentially is true. Not, not, not totally sure, but potentially he was skinned alive and ultimately beheaded for his faith. These people so believed in Jesus, so, so committed their lives to following him, that, that this wasn't something they had just made up. They, they believed it with everything that they had. 
to the point of, of, of being hated and, and willing to take that on for the sake of advancing the gospel and giving their lives. Beyond just the 12, the church has experienced incredible persecution throughout its history. It was Tertullian, the early church father, who said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Ultimately, that which, that which springs forth to, to greater efforts to proclaim and preach the gospel. As we look back, we see the faith of those who gave their lives. And we, we, we oftentimes don't recognize this. We don't recognize that this, it hasn't gotten any better. That in the 20th century, there have been mar- more martyrs for their faith than all the years before that combined. Like, it is staggering. And I can sit up here all morning and just, and just tell story after story of those who, who gave their lives, of John and Betty Stam, who, who went to China, who, who were, were murdered. Of, of those who went to Ecuador, Jamelia and Nate Saint, and, and ultimately, in the efforts to give the gospel, were put to death. This hatred from, from the world, from this, this, this human mind and heart that is set against God that doesn't want to receive Him, has expressed itself in hatred towards Jesus' followers throughout its history. But what about us? As we finally get down to us, how do we feel this hatred that Jesus warns about? I think we have a a really hard time hearing these words of, of relating to this. I mean, I know I do, don't you? Like, it seems so foreign. It seems so out there. Because here's the reality for most of us in here. We'll look at a text like this today. We'll, we'll read these things. We'll, we'll, we'll agree that, yes, the world's going to hate us. But what's going to happen is, you know, once I'm done, we'll take communion. We'll walk out of these doors. Many of us will probably go find one of the million nice restaurants to choose from in town. Sit down. Have lunch. Pray over your meal. Anybody watching you isn't, isn't going to care. You're going to drive home. Maybe you get out of your car and your neighbors will see you coming home from church. Wave at your neighbors. Nobody cares. Go home, take a nap, watch some Olympics, wake up tomorrow, go to work, and we feel zero hatred from the world, right? That's going to be most of our experience today. But what we need to remember is that when Jesus says these things, we need to realize that our experience in regards to the absence of persecution or suffering is a very rare thing in the history of the church. This is not the norm. This isn't the way it normally goes. And so these words that Jesus says still need to be heard by us, and we need to set our expectations not by our experience of things, but by Jesus' words and what he says. And he says, if you attach your identity to me, eventually, in some way, the world is going to hate you. And I believe that we can all sense even maybe a, a turning of the tide in our country, in our society, in our culture, right? We, we can see, even right now in small ways, you can look back to when even prayer was taken out of schools, when, when there's, 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 there's a seeking to, you know, uh, deny, you know, religious rights in certain ways. We, feel, we, we could feel and sense a growing hostility towards Christianity, kind of an increasing disdain for Christian values, for our moral commitments. There's, there's kind of rising opposition towards Christian mission. That's good for you, but don't, don't, don't go forcing it on everybody else. That kind of mentality is rising and increasing. We're being pushed further and further to the periphery of society. And that's okay. Jesus said it, it's probably going to happen. So I think it's helpful for us to to then look at Jesus' words and and ask, why does Jesus say that we will be hated? Why are we going to be hated? He says that we will be. We need to be ready for that. But why? Why does he say this will happen? He says, first of all, in verse 19, he says, you are no longer of the world. He says, if you were of the world, if you were part of them, they would love you. But when you are not one of them, then... They will hate on you. Does anybody remember a few years back when LeBron James made a big announcement that he was going to take his talents to South Beach? And he, he left his hometown Cleveland and, mo- and went down to play for the Miami, Miami Heat so he could get a championship. He had tried and struggled in Cleveland, but it just wasn't working out, so he, he decided to leave. And LeBron was their boy. 
He was, he was the hometown kid, the hero, the savior. Everybody in Cleveland loved LeBron. As soon as he made that announcement, what happened instantly? Guys were lighting up LeBron James jerseys in the street, burning them down. He's an outcast. We hate him. He betrayed us. Like for him, he came back and found redemption. But, but in that moment, it, it showed how fickle they were, those fans were. And this is kind of what, what Jesus is saying. He says, when you're of the world, when you're part of it, like you're, you're in it, you're, you're one, you have these shared values, you have these shared commitments, like, like they love you. But, but when you are not of the world, as I have pulled you out of the world, that transformation results in hatred from the world. And we have been pulled out. We have new allegiances. We have transformed hearts. We have a new set of values. We have redirected commitments. And it's because of this transfer that Jesus says the world will despise us. So maybe you have experienced this struggle in your own life. Maybe as you've come to faith, maybe later in life, out of, out of, out of, a, out of a life of, of just indulging in the worldly values. How has that, that taken place? How has that looked in, in friendships and relationships, maybe with your family? Doubtful that any of us have gone through physical harm, but, but probably there, there have been those who have struggled to accept your faith or your transformation as a good and positive thing, but maybe a sense of, of betrayal, of former friendships, of, of maybe you now are, are, think you're so self-righteous and, and look down on us for, for how, how we live. Maybe some of us have, have experienced that kind of thing. Maybe in the workplace, you're just a little bit odd, a little bit out of place, because you don't value the, the same types of, of joking, the same types of gossip, the same heart and culture that is in that office. You're just a little weird, just a little out of sync with the world's values, the world's goals. What did Peter say in First Peter? He said, describing this, this transfer and this, this, this change in the believer's lives. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry, all these expressions of worldly heart. They are surprised that you do not join with them in their reckless living. And then what do they do? How do they respond? He says, They heap abuse on you. Or they malign you. Like this, this, is, this is a natural result. Of, of, of living distinct and being not of the world. So as we are no longer of the world, Jesus warns and says we should expect that to not be received well. Secondly, he says, we are now identified with Christ and all that he stands for. So this is another reason. Because of our identity with Christ and all that he is, all that he represents, we may be hated. Jesus pulls us out of the world. He unites us to himself. So then how the world responded to Jesus is how we should expect the world to respond to us. And why did the world hate Jesus? Jesus told us back in, in John chapter 3. We looked at months ago. John chapter 3, he said, the, the light reveals the dark. Jesus says that, that, that as he has come, he brings this lightness into the darkness. And the darkness didn't want anything to do with it. He said that those who love darkness hate the light because of their evil deeds. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want it to be shown for what it is. And as Jesus' followers faithfully represent Jesus and teach what he commanded, isn't that what he told us to do? To make disciples and to teach the world all that Jesus commanded? As we do that, our message will be despised. A faithful Christian presence will always shine light in darkness and reveal it for what it is, and the darkness will seek to shut it out by whatever means possible. And this is kind of how we've arrived at this, this kind of, of crazy place of, of the intolerance of tolerance that we see in our society, right? Where, where the greatest value is tolerance. We, we were called to tolerate anything and everything. And even to the point where those championing tolerance are justified in then not tolerating those who they deem as having intolerant views. 
And we should expect it. Because Jesus' moral ethic will be despised. Jesus' take on relationships and his design for men and women will be rejected. God's design for human sexuality will be reviled. And the message of the wrath of God against our sin and the exclusive message of Jesus as the only way of salvation will be viewed as narrow-minded and unjust. And as Jesus' followers stand for truth that was delivered to us from Jesus, it will be offensive to this world. And the response eventually will result in us being marginalized, criticized, rejected, and ultimately scorned. And what does Jesus say? He says, the servant is not greater than his master. Then he said earlier when he washed their feet, he said, remember this principle, guys. If it happened to me, expect it to you. The servant is not greater than his master. And what did they do to Jesus? Isaiah 53, predicting what would happen, said this. It said that he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and he was held in low esteem. We have to remember that in following Jesus, it means following the path that Jesus took. And ultimately, we have to remember that Jesus ultimately was put on a cross and crucified. That doesn't mean that all of us are going to be put to death for our faith. But what it does mean is that this passage means no less than that as a possibility. And that is what the world is experiencing. There are Christians today living with the reality of that being a possibility and having to make the decision, am I going to deny him? Am I going to walk away? Or am I going to stick with him? And it's hard for us to relate to, to connect with. But we have to come to the point where we, we grip and recognize that this passage means no less than the cross. But as we're, as we're sitting here talking about why the world is going to hate us, I think it's important to maybe just, just take a sidestep and, and, and talk about why the world should not hate us, should not hate Jesus' followers. Because we don't want to be hated for the wrong reasons, right? So why should the world not hate us? They should not hate us because we first hated them. This gets tricky, right? Because in 1 John, what does John call us to? He says, do not love the world. Don't love the world. So in a sense, we're, we're, we're kind of called to hate the world, right? So how do we wrestle with this? How do we bring these together? I don't believe that we can take this in, as, as meaning that then we can be hateful towards the people of the world, as if it's a us-against-them kind of mentality. In Luke 6, what does Jesus tell us to do? He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you. So we are called at the same time to not love the world, meaning that we don't, we don't order our lives around its same values, the same desires, the same, the same things that the world values should not characterize us. That's what it means to not love the world. So there's this sense in which we're distinct from the world, while at the same time we're called to show love to the world that persecutes us. And we, the church, are often the ones that are accused of being filled with hate, right? This is a common accusation that we, we're just hateful bigots, right? And some of those accusations are misunderstood. We can work through that, but we have to recognize that Christians have plenty of hateful baggage that we need to own up to, we need to recognize in our own heart, in our own life, in our own churches. We need to repent of it and guard the way that we respond to those who criticize us. How we engage matters. What does Paul say to Timothy? He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, an apt teacher forbearing, correcting his opponents with gentleness. In 1 Peter, it says that we're always to be prepared to make a defense. There is a time and a place to make a reasoned defense for the gospel, for what we believe, what we stand for. There's a place for that dialogue. But what does he say? He says, make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and reverence. How we engage matters. 
the way in which we stand and speak for truth matters. And we are called to do it with love, with gentleness, not out of pride, not out of arrogance, not out of condemnation. So the world should not hate us because we hate them. I believe also we sh- the world should not hate us because we inaccurately represent Jesus, right? Because we're bad followers of Jesus. It was Gandhi who scathingly said of Christians, he said this, he said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. That's an accusation we at least need to hear. We at least need to recognize how we are perceived, how we are representing Jesus in this world. So we shouldn't be hated because we leave tracks instead of tips, right? If you go to a restaurant, don't just leave a tract, you know, especially one of those that's like, looks like a dollar bill or something, is like, hey, you want a million dollar question for it. Don't just leave that. Give them a good tip. You can leave a tract, but, but, but give them a good tip. Represent Jesus well. We shouldn't be hated because we equate Christianity with, with some political party or some agenda. People shouldn't hate us because we drive around with fish on our cars and we cut everybody off on the road. <laughs> we shouldn't be hated because we are offended at everything. We get all up in arms over, over what was it, red Starbucks cups a few years ago or anything like that. We need to be those who are, who are not easily offended. We shouldn't be hated because we look down on others with self-righteous piety as if we have just figured it out because we're so clever. We shouldn't be hated because we are hypocritical, a common accusation leveled against the church, and it's true. We need to own it. We, We are hypocrites. All of us are in some way, in some place, and we need to not pretend like we are. The gospel frees us up so we don't have to pretend like we're something that we're not. The gospel allows us to own who we are, our failures, our faults. So we need to be authentic and willing to admit our our faults. And we must not ever confuse being persecuted from holding to the gospel with people not liking us because we're just terrible humans. So how do we represent Jesus? Do we share the love? Do we we engage with the world as He did? Are Are we friends of sinners? And with that caveat, we come back and we recognize that ultimately, no matter how well we strive to accurately represent Christ, Jesus says that we will be hated. And He says why in verse 21. He says, ultimately, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's about God. It says they don't know God. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know Him who sent me. So no matter how well we represent our faith and we try to love the world, some will still hate us, some will still despise us. They did it to Jesus, and they will do it to His followers. We aren't exempt from this kind of treatment. We shouldn't try to win over the affections of the world. God doesn't need us to be His PR team and kind of, kind of make him come across better to the world by, by cutting out all the things that he teaches that the world finds offensive. We don't have to do that. The fact is that the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen and the only means to be reconciled with our Creator will always be an offensive message. It will always be a stumbling block. It will always rub people the wrong way Because God will not let us worship ourselves, and He will not settle for less than His glory, which is what the human condition, this worldly heart, is so set against. So we as the church can't have a victim mentality, as if we deserve something different, something better. We don't need to take to social media and start complaining about how bad we have it and and, and, and laying and tossing slander grenades across the other way. Jesus said it's going to happen because they simply don't know the Father. So our arguing and our defending and our frustration about how we're treated 
isn't going to save anyone, but pointing them to Jesus and thereby to see God as the only thing that will transform their hatred into love. But we have to have realistic expectations of what we're getting into. You know what you've signed up for in following Jesus. And so then, what is the mindset of a prepared disciple? And just very quickly, we want to just list a few things of of the mindset of one who is prepared, knows what what they're getting into, is walking into this. And it, it, first of all, just starts with this. How do we face this reality? First of all, we have to accept and admit that following Jesus is hard. Very simply, it's hard. We have to count the cost. Do we know what we are getting into? As much as as there's a message going around how how Jesus is just there to make your life better and it's going to be awesome and great, like, like we have to wrestle with texts like this. Yes, He is going to bring fullness of joy, but it's also going to come through a lot of difficulty. In Luke 9, Jesus said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, if you want to sign up, then you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life, they they have to lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will ultimately save it. Jesus didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't kind of give them a bait and switch. After he was gone, be like, hey guys, see ya, enjoy all that persecution. He, 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 he told them this was coming. He said to expect it. And he said, guess what, guys? You aren't the first ones doing it. I have gone before you. I have taken it on first. I have endured it to allow you to endure it. So following Jesus is hard. We secondly, as we prepare to engage in this, we have to recognize the guilty world that is in need. There are these challenging texts in here where Jesus gives two similar statements regarding his coming and the subsequent rejection of both his words and his works. And what he's saying in these, in the, in these verses, in verses 22 through 25, Jesus is basically saying that their rejection of him, of the fullest light that has been revealed of him coming to this world, their rejection has secured their end. There is no excuse. There is no denying their guilt and this is a world that is, that, is, that is in need of the message of Jesus. And it's not that we have, have done anything to get ourselves out of it. We were just like the world. We, it, it was nothing apart from Jesus reaching in and, and pulling us out of this, that, that we have escaped this. But ultimately, he's saying we should pity the world and not the other way around. So no matter how much they hate us, no matter how much they, they throw attacks at us, the response should be a, a compassion recognizing the guilt that they stand condemned under, and a heart for this world that will push past the hatred to love and to reach out to share the message and the love of Jesus. Another way that we are prepared is by recognizing and embracing the fact that we have this comforting spirit that has been given. Jesus says He didn't leave us, but He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, and He says when that Spirit comes, He is going to testify of Jesus. Then he says, you guys are going to then in turn testify about me. And these things are kind of go hand in hand. The means of the Spirit testifying is is through his people and through us. We're not left on our own to, to, to endure this, to take this on. We don't have to just bear it up on our own. But the Spirit has been given as a comfort, as a help, as we rest in the Spirit and seek to allow the Spirit of God to empower us, to embolden us, to proclaim and testify the message of Jesus. And this is what we see all through the book of Acts. We see a people captivated by Jesus, filled with the Spirit, sold out for the message of Jesus. We have a comforting Spirit that has been given. And lastly, we must have a hopeful remembrance. In 16.4, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And basically, Jesus just says, Hey guys, remember that I told you that this was going to happen. You're going to be put out of the synagogue, meaning they're going to be completely rejected by society, by their culture, by their family. And then he says ultimately uh, that people are going to put them to death and think that they're doing it in, in, in service to God. 
And what, what struck me as I was studying this passage is that Jesus doesn't offer a whole lot of awesome words of hope or anything in that. He basically just says, hey, remember that I told you it's going to happen. And be ready for it. So we remember Jesus. We remember what Jesus said and that he went before us. But why is it that passages like this are, are hard to hear? This isn't the most like pleasant, enjoyable sermon, the most pleasant message to hear. Why is it so difficult? Why did Jesus need to say these things? It's because he knows that his disciples are no different than us. We want so desperately to be liked right? Hatred is not enjoyable. We want to be received, welcomed, and liked. And we could try to reframe that. And we could try to, you know, prove all our haters wrong and just shake it off and, 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 and you know, get past it all. But at our core, we walk away from hatred feeling terrible. And if we don't hear these words from Jesus and prepare our hearts to feel the hatred, then we may collapse under the pressure and under the discomfort. And so there's this warning here. Because what happens right after Jesus tells them this? He says, hey guys, this is going to happen. They're going to hate you and people aren't going to receive you. And I'm telling you this so you don't fall away, so they're not crushed by it. What happens just later? Jesus gets arrested and all his disciples are like, see ya, they're out. Like, they leave. And then Peter... We see Peter in the coming chapters, and I'm, we'll get to it, but, he, but he's sitting around a fire with these people waiting to see what's going to happen with Jesus, and people are like, hey, aren't you a follower of Jesus? Weren't you one of the guys, like, in the garden? And, Jesus, and, and Peter is like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not with that guy. I'm not one of those guys. I'm different. I'm one of you. I'm not, I'm, I'm not with him. And immediately, all of his disciples completely fail their first test. So take heart. When you crumple under, under the pressure of, of those around you, when you fail to speak up for Jesus in an opportune moment, when you fail to live your faith out accurately, take heart, the, the disciples failed too. And Jesus, in his patience and his kindness, brings them back and sends them out again before he leaves. But we have to have a mind that is prepared to engage in this, to know what to expect, to know what to anticipate in this call to discipleship. So as we close, just some final thoughts. If we don't feel hatred from the world, it's at least worth considering, are you living a life that actually reflects Jesus? Do you look like a follower of Jesus? Do you hold to the things that Jesus valued? Does your life, is it characterized by the things that, that characterize Jesus? If the world doesn't hate you, it's at least worth asking, do you look like a follower of Jesus? Next, we re, we're called to remember those who are hated. Let us not get so consumed with, as Aaron said last week, our Disneyland Christianity and what we have here that we forget what is actually happening in this world I challenge you to spend some time this week, go on to a Voice of the Martyrs website or Open Doors website and just read the stories of the persecuted church, of those who are today struggling and wrestling with, with how to live out their faith in a place where they're, they're likely going to be killed for it. Read the stories of, of the parents in North Korea who have a hard time just even sharing the gospel openly with their kids out of fear that their kids in, at a young age are going are gonna to slip up and, and, and maybe reveal that in their school and their whole family may be put to death. Like we need to recognize what is happening in this world. The people are, are living this out, who are laying it all down, even to the point of death, for the sake of the gospel. Let us pray for the suffering church today. And in the absence of persecution here, in our own lives, in our own town, shouldn't we strive all the harder during this season, during this season of freedom, Shouldn't we strive harder to live on mission? When we don't feel opposition, shouldn't we work harder to get the gospel out there, to love our neighbors, to love those around us? And lastly, let's expect to be hated. 
And when we feel hated, what do we do? We look to Jesus. When we are scorned, we remember Jesus. When we are ridiculed, we confess Jesus as Lord. And rather than thinking that we have to win the world's affections, maybe, just maybe, Jesus is actually saying that when we are most hated is when our witness will be most effective. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, these words, he said, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Let's pray. God, we look to you this morning with these heavy words, words in which what it means to follow you is a life of scorn, a life of dislike, and yet let us be a people who, who gladly takes that on as the disciples were, were counted it worthy to suffer for your name. I pray that we would count it all joy when we encounter those things because we know that you are still at work in this world, that you are using us as weak as we are to bring the message of hope to this world. So I pray for the, the church around the world, those who are today maybe hosting a service in secret because of, of, of what would happen if they were found out, who are trying to spread the gospel through quiet, hidden conversations. And let that be a fuel to us to actively engage this world and our, our city and our town and our friends with the gospel. It's to you that we look this morning knowing that you will accomplish your purposes in this world through your people. It's in your beautiful name that I pray. Amen.